Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to this Institute for Policy Research uh, at the University of Bath um, lecture and discussion this evening. My name is Nick Pierce. I'm the uh, director of the uh, IPR, and I'm very pleased this evening to be able to uh, welcome to speak to us uh, Dr. Graham Garrard, who is reader in politics at uh, Cardiff University, University of Cardiff. Um, and he's here to talk to us about his new book, The Return of the State, and why it is essential for our health, wealth and happiness, which is now uh, published by Yale University Press. And um, uh, Dr. Garrard's book comes at a time when debate about the role of, of the state in our lives, in our economy, in our society is uh, returned to the fore, principally because of the COVID pandemic in which the state took over enormous uh, and important functions, but also perhaps um, as a consequence of the financial crisis uh, back in 2008 and uh, what it did to our understanding of our economic model, particularly in countries like the UK, uh, which had relied very heavily on the finance sector, uh, had re relied very heavily on relatively open markets uh, and where the role of the state had at least in part been constrained to certain functions. And so each of these uh, huge seismic crises events, the financial crisis and COVID in particular, have brought back into public discussion uh, in the UK and elsewhere, uh, the role of the state, the proper role of the state, uh, why we need it, um, and uh, its role in helping us as a society secure uh, many of the interests and objectives uh, which we seek. So uh, I'm not going to say more other than that by way of brief introduction to uh, Dr. Garrard's uh, argument. He's going to present his uh, the, the, the argument of his book uh, to us uh, this evening. Uh, and when we've heard from uh, Graham, what I'll do is I'll then bring us all back to uh, a Q&A and I'll host a Q&A and a discussion uh, on the basis of, uh, of what we've heard and the arguments presented. So thank you very much for joining this evening. Um, and without further ado, I will pass over to Graham. Graham, over to you. Oh, thank you very much, Dick. Um, uh, many thanks, first of all, for your kind invitation to speak to you today. I'm genuinely, genuinely honoured to address the Institute for Policy Research, whose work has helped to improve the quality of both uh, public debate and public policy in Britain today. I'm particularly grateful to Sophie O'Brien for arranging everything so efficiently and uh, so graciously. And I uh, very much appreciate everyone who has uh, come here today uh, to listen to my ramblings. Uh, I look forward to your questions and your comments. Um, I'm actually in Cardiff at the moment where I live, uh, not a million miles away from Bath uh, as I speak to you now. Um, my flat here looks directly across the Bristol Channel to Somerset, which greets me every morning uh, when I first get up and open my window and is the last thing that I see when I close it at night. Um, you'll, be able, uh, you'll be able to tell from my funny accent that I'm, uh, I'm neither Welsh nor even British. I come from Canada originally although I've lived in the UK now longer than I lived in Canada. As I like to say, I didn't get out early for good behavior, uh, just like Karl Marx, who lived most of his life in Britain. So I have uh, 40 minutes to speak. I thought what I would do is uh, begin with some general prefatory comments about why I wrote this book about the state now, 
and then I'll uh, summarize its key arguments. The book contains a lot of data and detail, which I'll skip in this address uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, instead, I'll give you a very broad sketch of my case for a strong and active state rather than a, a detailed portrait, which you can get in the book. Uh, we can delve into details and specifics uh, during the questions and answers, if you like. Um, so uh, a few prefatory remarks um, before I get into the real substance. Um, I turned 15 years old in 1980. So I was uh, just becoming politically aware as what we now call neoliberalism, the term wasn't actually used back then, uh, was being converted from a theory into a political project, uh, one that would become dominant and even hegemonic. So the 40 years in which I have studied, taught, and written about politics have coincided uh, exactly with the dominance of neoliberalism on both the political right and even the political left. So I think that I'm in a very good position to render a verdict on neoliberalism, not just as a theory, but also as a political practice. Um, and this point is crucial, I think. Until 1980, neoliberalism was just a theory, or as I prefer to call it, an ideology, an abstraction in the minds of people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, among others. Although its origins as an ideology go back to the 1930s. Um, there's a really excellent book on that subject, which I can recommend by Daniel Stedman Jones called Masters of the Universe, which traces the ideological and political history of neoliberalism. The post-war welfare state consensus, which neoliberalism was challenging at that point in 1980, was both a theory and a practice and was therefore answerable for both. This put neoliberalism at a huge advantage, which it no longer enjoys. Now that we have 40 years of neoliberal practice to consider. That's why I prefer to refer, I prefer to call neoliberalism an experiment, the neoliberal experiment, which began in practice in, around 1980. And in many ways, my book is a kind of report on that experiment. And my conclusion is that the neoliberal experiment has been an abject failure for everyone except the top 1%, let's say, uh, the, the Davos elites, who have done very well indeed in the last 40 years. I'll explain why I think this over the next 30 minutes. I believe that we are now at the beginning of the end of neoliberalism, or perhaps I should say, I hope that we are, uh, because it's a remarkably resilient um, system of ideas. Uh, assuming we are at the beginning of the end uh, of neoliberalism, I wrote this book as a contribution to an emerging debate that we should now be having about what ought to come after neoliberalism. And this leads to my final uh, prefatory comment before I get into my actual argument. Despite the title of the book, which is The Return of the State, it is as much about the market as it is about the state. And this has to be 
because there are no markets without states now and no states without markets. Um, I'm not sure if that's entirely true. I can't think of any examples of, of states without markets or markets without states, maybe North Korea. I don't know if that's a pure state with no market, but uh, maybe someone knows more than I do. Um, on that subject, maybe someone can come up with examples. But basically, um, the debate today should not be market or state, but what is the best combination of the two? And that's always been the case, I think. All societies are mixed. Uh, we should be debating what's the best mix of state and market. And my answer to that is definitely not neoliberalism. There needs to be a better balance between states and markets, one that favors the former much more than neoliberalism has. We need to have a debate about the best balance between private power and public power. The dominant form of public power today is the state. The dominant form of private power is now the large multinational corporation. Those are our options. I think the public interest would be better served by a major shift of power from the private to the public, from multinational corporations to states. Now, um, that said, uh, I'm not a socialist in the technical sense of favoring a complete social or collective ownership of the means of production. Almost no one is actually, even people who call themselves socialists, at least that's what I found. But I do favor a much greater role for the state in economic life than has been the case since I was 15. Okay, so those are my uh, prefatory introductory comments. So let's get to the actual case that I have to present. Um, as I said, uh, a lot will be um, missed out and uh, a lot of detail uh, it won't be included either, but uh, we can come to that later on. Um, the overall economic size of states now has not been shrinking if measured as a proportion of national GDP. Uh, government welfare spending is still quite high in most industrialized societies, although where it has been cut back, the least well-off have suffered the most. In fact, in some cases, it has even increased as it did during the global financial crisis 2008, let's say, and also during the COVID pandemic when there's a huge increase in public spending and public debt. Uh, but according to neoliberal theory, markets are more competitive, efficient and fairer than states, which have been cast as the chief villains. And so it is preferable for neoliberals to have markets allocate resources and provide public goods and services wherever possible. That's been an article of faith uh, in our politics for generation now. In policy terms, this means deregulating the economy, particularly the financial sector, outsourcing the provision of goods and services to the private sector, privatizing publicly owned industries and businesses, and a policy of fiscal austerity to balance budgets or maintain balanced budgets. Uh, that's the theory, the neoliberal theory. The practice we now know is another matter. 
150 years ago, roughly, um, Karl Marx observed that the one thing that actual capitalists hate more than anything else is competition. Uh, they do everything they can to crush it. Uh, this is because competition tends to lower profits as businesses compete for uh, customers. So Marx predicted that capitalism would tend to evolve towards monopolies. Uh, I think this was one of his most prescient observations. Um, Lenin in the early 20th century contrasted the early phase of small scale capitalism with its many businesses competing with each other to the oligopolistic form of mature capitalism in his own time, which he saw as a precursor to socialism, a form of state capitalism. This trend first identified by Marx uh, a century and a half ago uh, is still very apparent in the 21st century when so many sectors of our economy are now dominated by one, two, or three, or maybe um, slightly more large sellers. We now live in the age of the trillion dollar company, uh, companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google. Uh, today, 47 of the world's 100 largest economies are multinational corporations. The sphere of our lives dominated by private secretive and unaccountable power has been greatly enlarged under neoliberalism as states have increasingly withdrawn from the business of business and private corporations have grown in size and wealth to become new leviathans. We live in a new gilded age with plutocrats like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett and Elon Musk playing the same role as John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie and JP Morgan did in the late 19th century. Uh, this new age of multinational corporations is an age of oligopolies. So uh, if you'll indulge me, um, I'll give you a few statistics just to back up this claim um, without going into too much detail. In 2015, the top 100 com companies in the world accounted for 84% of corporate profits. Uh, Google now has nine, a nine, almost 90% market share as a search engine, Facebook an almost 80% share of social networks, Apple's iPhone and Google's Android completely control the mobile app market. And Amazon is by far the largest e-commerce seller with an estimated market share of 43%. Uh, Boeing and Airbus between them have a 91% share of commercial aircraft market. The US, in the US, about 60% of autom automobile manufacturing is shared between four firms and six firms control 90% of the mass media market. The music industry is dominated by universal music groups, Sony and Warner. Um, I could go on and on, uh, but I won't. I simply want to give those as examples, um, but there are, trust me, a lot more. Um, virtually all of the world's major industrialized sectors of the economy are now controlled by a small number of firms and 28% have one corporation that accounts for more than 40% of global sales. 
10 richest companies in the world include Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, giving them a disturbing reach that envelops most of the online public sphere, effectively allowing them to control public communication and thereby threatening democracy. The only power capable of countering this and asserting the public interest is the state. Organized labor has declined dramatically and is no longer in a position to challenge corporations the way they once did. Uh, in two, as of 2012, in the United States, only 11% of the workforce were uh, members of a trade union. And uh, the only figure I could get, comparable figure I could get for the European Union is from 2001, when it was 26.4%. Corporations exist to make profits, not to promote the public good. Uh, this, is, this will always be true. It's very naive to think that they will ever voluntarily subordinate their own interests to anything that might significantly undermine it, since profit is their raison d'etre. Even undemocratic and unaccountable states like China, for example, sometimes act for the public good private corporations never do. No multinational corporations are democracies. In 1714, the Anglo-Dutch writer Bernard Mandeville published his controversial book, The Fable of the Bees, or Private Vices, Public Benefits. In it, he argues that traditional, the traditional Christian idea of virtue based on self-sacrifice is really just a hypocritical mask for self-interest. The self-interest that he said is the root of all human behavior. Therefore, the mask is unnecessary, he said, because each of us pursuing our own selfish interests leads to the general economic prosperity of all. Private vices, public benefits. Uh, this was considered anti-Christian and very controversial uh, when it was published at the time in the 18th century. Uh, today, far from shocking opinion, as his, his argument did at the time, uh, this has now become an article of faith among mainstream economists and ideological proponents of laissez-faire capitalism. It's also the foundational assumption of neoliberalism, which sees free markets as fair, efficient, and more or less self-regulating. But what if Mandeville was wrong and uh, the more or less free operation of markets leads to um, public harm? What if private vices lead to public harm, not public benefit? Just look at, the two at 2008, if you want an answer to that question. It's self-evident, at least it is to me, I think increasingly to a lot of people in 2022, that what is good for large multinational corporations is good for them and only them. They used to say a long time ago in the 50s and 60s that what's good for General Motors is good for America. Um, uh, this view, uh, alternative view, that what is good for large multinational corporations is good for them and only them should really be the starting point of any system that succeeds neoliberalism. 
Uh, one reason so many corporations now have offshore headquarters and bank accounts is not just to avoid taxes, but to avoid regulation of their operations and accountability. They employ armies of accountants, lawyers, bankers, agents, and intermediaries to protect them from scrutiny. Uh, we saw this, uh, the mask fell away briefly um, with the uh, leaked Panama Papers from 2016, you probably remember, um, and the Pandora Papers and the Paradise Papers, there was a succession of leaks in which the um, inner workings of this system uh, were uh, apparent. Um, and suffice it to say, it, it wasn't pretty. Um, and it didn't uh, accord with what we're told about the theory of the market, uh, according to neoliberalism. At least democratic governments can be voted out. They are in principle accountable to voters at elections. Uh, private corporations never are. That's why Noam Chomsky called them perfect tyrannies. Ignoring such massive private wealth and power as neoliberals tend to, by focusing on state power and the abuse of state power distorts perceptions about where power really resides in the world today. A, uh, a key part of the uh, neoliberal project, political project is uh, privatization. Uh, beginning with Margaret Thatcher's first government in 1979, uh, there's been a veritable frenzy of privatization of publicly owned industries and businesses, uh, not just in Britain, but around the world. Um, I give many examples of this in the book from all over the world and coming from both the political right and the political left. Um, Margaret Thatcher was well aware of this and uh, considered a point of pride. She said in, uh, in a triumphant speech she gave to her party um, in 1986, I'll quote directly from it, here's is what she said. So popular is our policy of privatization that's being taken up all around the world, from France to the Philippines, from Jamaica to Japan, from Malaysia to Mexico, from Sri Lanka to Singapore, privatization is on the move. There's even a special orient, oriental version of China in China. The policies we have pioneered are catching on in country after country. We conservatives believe in popular capitalism, believe in a property owning democracy, and it works. Um, I agree with all of that statement, except the last three words. Um, uh, she really meant to say it works for those who are already rich. Um, that's uh, borne out by the fact that um, privatization did not spread the wealth. Instead, it narrowed it even further. Uh, prior to her election in 1979, individuals owned 40% of shares in UK companies. And when she died in 2013, that figure had shrunk to 12%. Um, we've now seen the reality of privatization in, and it cannot be called a success, except to those whose uh, private interests, um, who bought uh, public industries and utilities at knockdown prices and have made large profits from them ever since. Again, um, there are lots of examples in the book um, but I think the most uh, relevant one at the moment has to be uh, 
the uh, privatized uh, train system, rail system in Britain, which was um, not Thatcher's policy, but uh, John Major's policy, but according to the same principles. Just let me see how I'm doing for time. Good. Um, we live in a world of big, big businesses, big states, big populations, big economies, and big science. The scale of the human world has grown to often inhuman dimensions, uh, which has made it seem as though the natural world is shrinking. In many respects, it is literally in the forests of the Amazon, the ice caps of the Arctic, and the coral reefs of Australia. Much as we might want to go back to a smaller, simpler, more human scale world, for now, that is not a realistic possibility. Neither is the primitive emergent capitalism of the late 18th and early 19th centuries that Alexis de Tocqueville, for example, observed in, the small, in small town New England, so much admired today by the limited government believers in civil society. I should add that um, I have a chapter in the book on civil society um, in which I argue that it does not offer an alternative or a, a third way, um, pardon the phrase, um, to the market and the state. It's often held up as an example of a realm independent of states and markets, between states and markets, uh, a realm of free association of voluntary um, groups and communities um, which, where freedom can flourish. Um, I argue in that chapter that this is wishful thinking. That might have been the case, maybe, was the case in um, 1830s uh, New England, but it's certainly not the case in uh, uh, the advanced economies and technologically sophisticated economies of the 21st century. When the realm that's sometimes referred to as civil society has been, I argue, uh, completely or almost completely colonized by the market. That's why I say that our choices here are pretty limited. It's big markets and big states, basically. Um, right, we cannot just pick and choose the form of capitalism we prefer as if ordering from an a la carte menu. Men make their own history, Marx wisely said, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances. I'm still quoting Marx now, but under circumstances already existing, given and transmitted from the past. Uh, capitalism is a system that isn't one thing. It uh, takes many different forms and is constantly changing, which is one reason why we have to keep adjusting our conception of the state, the purposes and functions of the state, because uh, states and markets always go together. They're opposite sides of the same coin. Um, and so as capitalism evolves, so too must the state. And my argument is essentially that capitalism has evolved in a certain direction, the direction that I've been describing for the last uh, half an hour, and that therefore we must adjust our view of the state. And that's what I think the debate should be um, about. 
the market has uh, significantly increased its power and position in our lives and dominates a greater part of our economic life than it has in the past. And therefore, we should um, reconceptualize the state accordingly. Our capitalism is dominated by big oligopolistic corporations and likely will be for some time to come. That's why our state needs to be a public interest state, what I call a public interest state, big and strong enough to provide and protect the most essential public goods for everyone in such a world. The neoliberal state has retreated from the freedom enhancing and life enriching goals available to all without entirely abandoning them. And it has greatly enhanced the freedom and power of private business, leaving most of us exposed to economic harm from those corporate behemoths. The state must protect us from such harm no less than it protects us from physical harm. And so uh, I'm getting close to the end here. Uh, we require strong states today to counter strong corporations and to promote and protect the public interest. Nothing else is capable of doing so today. As long as such private power exists, we need comparable and even greater public power to control it. The public interest state, as I call it, is now the only institution that might effectively check the growing dominance of corporate oligopolies and guarantee universal access to the most important human goods. Um, that's my paper, and I see that it's uh, just past half past six. So um, if uh, there are any questions, I think maybe this would be a good time to, uh, to take some questions. Great. Thank you, Graham. Thanks very much indeed. Um, Thanks very much indeed for that uh, for that lecture and for the summary of the argument of your book. And uh, um, we'll certainly want to get into a debate with um, those watching. I, I'll, I'll kick us off, if I may, which is just sure. to um, uh, ask a few things. So, um, I mean, you, you sort of you you ended there on a on a plea for a big state doing big things um, and protecting essential public goods. I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about what that might entail. So I'll be talking about uh, extending beyond universal provision of education and health. Uh, are we talking about extensions of the welfare state? Or are we principally concerned with regulating and reforming, breaking up monopolies, mm -hmm. improving workers' power in the workplace, uh, extending our democracy over the realm of the market. Um, perhaps you could, could you say a little bit more about what you envisage the modern state to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a very fair question. I didn't address that uh, in this talk, but I do in the book. Um, so uh, one thing I just wanted to say first, though, is that um, I, I tried not to be too prescriptive because um, uh, different societies have different traditions and uh, political cultures. And one of my criticisms, my many criticisms of neoliberalism is that it, it generally takes a one size fits all approach to public policy and imposes it sometimes um, coercively on 
uh, a wide range of uh, societies where it may not be there may there where it may not be at all appropriate, um, given their own traditions of um, state involvement in the economy. I'm thinking in particular now of um, countries in South and Central America, let's say, many of which were. Um, compelled uh, to adopt neoliberal policies by international agencies like the IMF when they needed loans. Um, They're often forced to uh, um, uh, sell off state industries and state uh, utilities, um, cut their budgets, uh, impose austerity and things. Um, So um, whereas a more flexible and more um, context-sensitive approach, uh, I think, would have been appropriate. So I'm a little hesitant to be too prescriptive. However, um, th- with that caveat, um, uh, I, I, um, I prefer to see um, a larger role for the state in the economy. Um, but um, I... I can't or rather won't specify exactly what that would be, because I think that would depend on a lot of circumstances. However, um, I do think that um, important public utilities should be um, in the public domain. And part of the reason for this, which I I think I already touched on, is that um, at least in democracies, um, these uh, utilities um, can be run in the public interest if they're publicly owned. Now, there's no guarantee that they will, but I think there's more likelihood that they will if they are in democracies uh, where there's some amount of public accountability, uh, which there isn't in uh, in uh, private corporations. And also, um, profits from these uh, industries and utilities can be, um, uh, uh, can benefit the public uh, treasury I uh, gave uh, some examples of this in the book. The best example that springs to mind is, um, is, is Norway. Uh, Norway, the, the Norwegian state owns um, uh, two thirds of a oil company called Equinor. Um, and it uh, gets all the dividends, three qu- two thirds of the dividends that are generated from that industry go to the uh, the public purse and are used for public goods for um, infrastructure and education and health and welfare. Um, that's true of a lot of companies that are publicly owned, so-called state-owned enterprises. Um, now, uh, some people will say, well, uh, these enterprises might lose money. So um, not only would they um, not contribute to the uh, public purse, they might actually be cost but um, I don't see that as a decisive counterargument because um, one of the reasons for publicly owned um, enterprises is that they don't have to follow the bottom line. They may actually lose money, but provide a public good. Um, and an example that comes to mind, which I gave in the book, is, um, is an airline, for example. Um, s- sometimes uh, airlines, it's not cost effective for an airline to um, provide a uh, service to a remote, small community. Uh, it just isn't cost effective. They would lose too much money. Um, whereas a uh, state-owned airline might uh, simply absorb the cost, uh, write off the cost um, as uh, the price of uh, providing a uh, important public good. Mm. The uh, ability of those uh, residents to um, 
to uh, to travel when they in fact might not be any other alternatives if they're sufficiently remote. Um, uh, another example, so there are obviously, there, there are some obvious examples, things like public utilities, trains, um, uh, energy, water. Um, I think when you look at each of these sectors, there's a strong case for public ownership. Um, uh, a, a case that uh, Margaret Thatcher never really, uh, and the early practitioners of neoliberalism, never really had to address because, um, as I said, it was an experiment. So they didn't, you didn't really see the consequences of it until much later. And I think we can now see quite clearly what the consequences are. Um, another example, which is more controversial, I think, um, is uh, banks, the banking sector. I argue in the book that uh, it would be desirable to, um, for the entire banking sector to be publicly owned. Um, and the argument there is, and it, it, I mean, there are lots of examples of public ownership of banks, including recently in Britain, mm. when the banks, when some banks failed in the financial crisis, uh, they were effectively taken over by the state. Uh, that's even true in the United States. Um, uh, it's true in a lot of countries. Um, uh, India has nationalized almost all of its banks. Um, Israel nationalized its banking system at one point. Um, my view is that a, a banking system that's too big to fail, any bank or any, in fact, any institution that's too big to fail uh, should not be in private hands. It puts the public at too much risk. It uh, creates a perverse incentive for these uh, banks and businesses to take risks knowing that they'll be bailed out because they're too big to fail. So they collect uh, the profits when they are making profits, they bank the profits and pay themselves bon big bonuses and pay out dividends. But when they take risks and jeopardize the entire economy, then they get, expect to be bailed out. Um, that's what we saw in 2008 on a huge scale. and. Uh, so I think uh, that no institution should be too big to fail. It's too risky for the public. Now, an alternative to owning them would be to break them up. You, you could do that. In, in the United States has a, a tradition of um, breaking up monopolies or breaking up um, big corporations uh, rather than publicly owning them. Um, but breaking up these things is very uh, destabilizing because they would keep, they would simply end up reforming into monopolies again, I think. Um, and so uh, you'd have to keep, you'd have to keep smashing them, breaking them down so that they were small enough that if any one of them failed, they wouldn't um, jeopardize the entire economy. Uh, so that is an alternative, and it's one that obviously has to be considered, but I, my preference would be, because it's more stable, is for the uh, banking sector to be, uh, to be publicly owned. Uh, Britain has one of the most concentrated banking systems in the world. It uh, has a huge proportion of its uh, um, uh, current accounts by ordinary people are um, in, in just five high street banks. And so if any of those fail, um, they, they will be bailed out almost certainly. And um, uh, I think that makes a strong case for um, public ownership.
So um, those are some examples with that caveat that I gave at the beginning. Um, those are some examples of the kinds of things that I think the state should do. And also um, that, that has to do with control of the economy. Um, I also think that regarding um, welfare provision, um, the, the, there should be um, really no outsourcing and privatization of um, uh, basic public goods uh, essential to a decent human life, health, uh, for example, and education, um, energy, maybe even um, uh, access to the internet. There's debate now about uh, having the internet, uh, um, having social media so dominated by and controlled by um, private corporations. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, um, but uh, I, I don't think one has to necessarily go all the way and have um, the entire economy, all the means of production uh, publicly owned. I'm, I'm open to um, uh, different alternatives there, but I do think that there ought to be a shift um, towards the public sector, towards the state from, from markets, uh, from private power to public power, um, and what I call a, a better balance between the two. Okay, Graham, thank you very much. We've got now got a, a bunch of questions, so I'm going okay. to fire a few at you, okay? Yes. So, um, so the, uh, the, the first, I mean, uh, we've had a few from Jeremy Lebrand, and one of them which I think is um, an interesting question I was going to pose myself is obviously, um, uh, you know, we don't live in a in a in a in a global economy in which there are only Western countries and only Western companies. Um, in fact, you know, a large part of the economic growth of the last three decades has come in East Asia, Southeast Asia, mm. particularly China. Um, uh, what do you say um, to those that would say, "Well, you're, you're distinguishing distinguishing between states and markets in very Western terms, and there's a different model of capitalism." Yeah. Uh, in China, um, there's a different role for the state and different role for markets in uh, in East Asia, <clears throat> or indeed you might say in Russia actually, yeah. uh, an entirely different model of capitalism, fossil fuel gangster capitalism, if you like, um, uh, in, in in a state like Russia. What do what, how would you uh, how would you respond to that critique? Well, um, I I talk a lot about. Uh, um, Asia in the book, and particularly China. In fact, um, so what I argue is that we should really look to um, the Far East uh, from the West um, uh, to, for, for um, uh, uh, example of how we might better balance state and markets. Um, uh, there is something referred to as the Washington consensus, essentially neoliberal consensus um, that has been dominant for some decades now, called the, neo the Washington consensus. And it generally favors the kinds of uh, public policies that I mentioned, the outsourcing and the privatization and the, the, the austerity and the deregulation. Um, but there's also something increasingly referred to as the Beijing consensus. Um, the Chinese state has moved in the direction of state-owned enterprises, where the state has taken a much more active role in um, owning businesses. Uh, they run them as co corporations, in the open market, but they're owned either entirely or in part by the Chinese state. In fact, most 
uh, the, the country with the largest number of these now by far is China, but not just China. Um, the, there are a lot of countries um, all over the world that have these state-owned enterprises, but they are particularly common or increasingly common in the Far East. And so I have a section in the book where I um, uh, discuss these and argue that uh, these might provide a model for um, the, the um, West, which is still dominated by neoliberalism. Um, so I, I kind of see the Far East as actually um, providing some um, uh, leadership in how we might reconsider the role, the relationship between states and markets today in the West. Um, th there are of course differences within Asia, that's true. But um, I think that uh, if, if uh, these state-owned enterprises become increasingly dominant in the global marketplace, um, the West is going to have to at least consider something like that itself, even if they don't want to, um, because uh, you know, these, these state-owned enterprises are huge and they're increasingly dominant in the global marketplace. And um, um, it may be that they have advantages that private, large private corporations don't have and can't compete with, mm -hmm. because of course they have the state behind them. Um, uh, but I think beyond that, uh, they, they may represent a, a model for um, the West to consider um, that it may be that as capitalism is always changing, always evolving and developing and adapting, it's enormously adaptive, um, that may be that the relationship between states and markets that exists in the West today that more or less reflects this neoliberal uh, consensus uh, may be becoming obsolete and that what's happening in the Far East may be the next phase of capitalism, sometimes called state capitalism, where, where states run businesses. And uh, so the, 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 the claim that perhaps I have too Western a, a view of this uh, is, is valid, but I have considered what's happening in the Far East. And I think that actually it may present um, a, uh, a model of, for how we reconstruct the relationship between states and markets. Uh, you know, not necessarily replicated exactly. It's unlikely the West would ever tolerate um, the degree of state involvement in the economy that China has today, for example. But you know, a, a step in that direction may well be um, uh, desirable. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Gum. So we've got a, a, another. A couple of questions which I, I think are related. I'll pull them together from uh, my colleague James Copestake and Lloyd, um, which is about uh, global institutions to regulate markets. So one, uh, another response perhaps to your talk is to say, well, uh, at what level is the state? Is it always the nation state? Or are we talking about more effective regulation at the level of, say, the European Union? Uh, or are we talking about global regulation to think about um, uh, global institutions that regulate market economies. Um, so, uh, you know, is, is the state always the nation state or do, do we have other groupings of state or other international global institutions that need to regulate the market economy? Right, well, um, I, I'm a bit hesitant to get drawn into a, uh, the 
a discussion about the EU just because um, I'm uh, I'm not very expert on it, but also it's it's I guess a, a matter of open uh, uh, debate as to whether it's a state or a quasi-state or um, you know uh, it's a kind of an anomaly in some ways. Um, uh, you know the, the European Union has. Um, has uh, has monetary policy, but individual states have fiscal policy. So it's um, it's uh, tricky. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't see much evidence of uh, regulation of the economy, the global economy, um, at the transnational level. So I'm basically thinking about nation states. That's true. Um, obviously, the EU is an exception because it's a, an element of regulation, economic regulation there, which is transnational. Um, but if you're thinking of um, genuinely global institutions that can control or regulate these uh, economic giants, these behemoths I've been describing, these corporate behemoths, um, I'm not sure I can think of really any that are very effective, or um, uh, I'm not quite sure what uh, the question has in mind there. Um, obviously, there are huge agencies like the IMF and the um, World Bank and things, mm -hmm. but, and, and they may at some point uh, be a solution. They may be able to control and regulate um, these businesses, um, but I don't see much evidence of it now. I do talk quite a lot in the book about that, about these international agencies. I'm really quite critical of them. Um, they've generally bought into neoliberalism and have generally um, used what power and influence they have, which in some cases is considerable, to promote neoliberalism to create an environment favorable to the um, flourishing of these huge corporations. I think that this is changing somewhat now. I think the IMF has been a little bit uh, more reluctant. I'm thinking of the case of Greece, um, when it had its financial crisis. Um, they, they were less um, uh, keen to impose uh, um, austerity than some other of the uh, Troika, but I really don't see much hope and much evidence at that level uh, for addressing the kinds of problems that I've raised uh, and that I think are serious um, in, uh, in the present. Mm -hmm. Maybe that will change and, and maybe, uh, maybe someone can provide an example some examples of, of those kinds of agencies. Okay. They, they generally, sorry, one last point. They, they generally are, can, are dominated by um, the wealthiest countries and they tend to be dominated by um, you know, neo, neoliberal policies. That, that too is likely to change as China and, and other countries become more uh, powerful. But um, I, I don't see much hope at that level. Not, not at the moment, not that I'm aware of. Um, I have another question here, which um, uh, is from Nick Langdridge, which is, is picking up on your uh, points about civil society. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the question says, are you saying that civil society, non-governmental organisations, non-market organisations, or the sphere of civil society can't be defined as, as independent of either the state or market? Um, and are illusionary in some sense, illusory. Um, and Nick says, I'd be interested to understand the role you'd give to mutual aid and to collective action, to the commons, direct democracy, and so on in a, 
in a post neoliberal economy. Yeah. So right. Yeah. Well, very fair question. I did kind of skip over that. Uh, I was a bit glib, um, but I, I was worried about time. But um, I do have a whole chapter on that. Uh, I think that chapter is called um, Wishful Thinking mm -hmm. Between State and Market. I think that's the, the so that's a clue. Um, uh, well, um, I, I'm not saying there's no such thing as a kind of independent civil society. Of course, one of those notorious phrases, civil society, that's hard to define and means everything and nothing in a sense. Um, but uh, um, it, it's just that I, I think that um, because of advances in uh, science and technology, which I do discuss in, in that chapter, um, and uh, the development of the market, um, the, the range, the penetration of the market in, in our society today, um, facilitated to a large extent by changes in science and technology, um, that it, it just doesn't have the the capacity to resist the colonization of uh, civil society that occurs through the market, through advertising, for example. I talk a lot about that in that chapter. Um, the way that advertising has just saturated, completely saturated um, uh, the, the, the world, uh, particularly in the West, um, the family, the, uh, the public sphere, um, the marketplace. Um, I provide quite a few details about that. Um, I even discuss um, some, some of the, uh, um, some data about um, marketing and the way that marketing is used nowadays. Um, now, um, th there are a lot of people who have faith in civil society as an alternative and um, as a sphere that where, where freedom can flourish from these forces, these powers. Um, but I'm just more skeptical. Um, it's, as I say, it's not, it's not 18, we're not in 1830s New England where you really did have, um, you know, independent farmers and small businesses and, and local and mutual aid and local support and, and churches and community groups. And the state was weak, even non-existent. And uh, Tocqueville talks about this and, and how um, he admired all this. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that exists nowadays um, because, uh, you know, ch children are exposed to a relentless barrage of advertising from almost the second that uh, they're born. Um, uh, I do quote some statistics about that. Um, and it's, it's, uh, the, the public sphere is just saturated with advertising, with popular culture and things. Its penetrative power is enormous. Um, and so I think given all of that, I just remain skeptical that there's really much there that's independent. Um, I did target a few people in the book to, uh, directly on this subject. Mm -hmm. um, one of them was, um, um, Philip Blonde, uh, who, who wrote a book on this subject in which he extols the, 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 the civil society as a kind of space of, of little platoons and, and, and uh, um, mutualism and all these things. I just think that's naive. Um, I don't think that uh, these things can thrive and 
uh, be independent um, in, the in the contemporary context or for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. That's why I said at the end, we live in a world of big. Um, that, that's what I meant. Um, and it's just very, very difficult, virtually impossible for, in my view, for um, you know, th these independent groups to, to thrive to sustain themselves. Um, uh, many, of your, uh, many of your audience will, will maybe be familiar with, with um, Robert Putnam's research on this, Bowl Bowling Alone. He wrote this book, Bowling Alone. Um, I remember reading that when I was writing this book and uh, you know, he, he does make a strong case that um, what he, what's called social capital which sustains civil society um, without the need for the state to support it, um, has really shriveled and uh, is um, weakened under the force, the relentless force of these overwhelming powers, um, which, which as I say are enhanced and magnified by modern technology. Mobile phones being a good example. So how, how then um, is the state to be organized is the state to be like a big company so that uh, or that, uh, it, you know, they're run out of Whitehall, um, that community groups and local democracy yeah. don't have a role? Is, is the big state uh, to be thought of as, as, in some sense, homologous to a large corporation? Um, no, no, uh, it, it isn't. Um, uh, I, I'm not naive about the state, I should add quickly. Uh, There's a caveat I didn't put in, but I should thank you for the uh, opportunity. Um, you know, um, uh, state, state is just a form of organized public power, um, just as a multinational corporation is a form of private power. So anytime you have large concentration of power, you have risk, risk that uh, it will be abused. And, and um, so if you, do what the American founding fathers did and say, well, it's just too risky to have a powerful state, that much power in the hands of the state. So we'll design a political system that simply makes the state weak, inherently weak, with checks and balances and, and all these things. Um, so that King, that King George or his future uh, form manifestations won't be able to oppress the people. Um, the, the problem with that is that it, it means that a lot of things that you need power and the power of the state to achieve, to do the good things, you can't because you've limited the power of the state. So you can't really achieve anything good um, without power. Um, and, but power entails risk. So this is the problem. Um, now, the, the, the other problem related to that is that uh, the power of the state does not exist in isolation from power of markets, of corporations. So if you limit the power of the state because you're afraid of state power, which is a legitimate concern, you're, in, you're actually in doing that, in enhancing the power of the markets. And- I'm more, more interested in the, in, in the question of, if the state is to be 45, 50% of GDP, hmm. if the state is to own utilities to run, to decommodify and run large public services, how is it to be organized in such a way uh, that it is accountable, uh, that power isn't at uh, risk in the way you describe? I, yeah. I'm more interested in your answer to that to that question. Sure. And and why why that might not entail a role for the agency of individuals and communities 
themselves a greater extension of democracy of the kinds of things that the questioner asked about sure um well uh <clears throat> well one thing is to make it a democracy <laughs> mm. um so uh, you know uh, most 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 countries of the world today um uh, technically uh, describe themselves as democracies, um, but of course that doesn't necessarily mean much. Uh, Ch China probably considers itself a democracy. Um, uh, but I mean, a genuine democracy, let's say, um, however you define that. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are strong states in the world that are not democracies and there are strong states that are. Obviously a strong state that's a democracy has a, an amount of accountability that doesn't exist in strong states that aren't strong authoritarian <laughs> states it also has a degree of accountability not present in large public corporations and as i said um, many of the largest economies in the world today are large public corporations with zero accountability or almost zero accountability so that's one answer is is it should be democratic um, and um, that doesn't just apply to the state. I also argue in the book that this could be applied to corporations themselves. Um, this has been a policy in Germany for quite, and some, a small number of other countries as well. I think in the Netherlands and certain Nordic countries um, uh, where the, the uh, members, uh, employees or um, uh, uh, um, consumers, let's say, um, are actually members of the boards of directors, the board of directors of, of large companies. Um, uh, that's been the case in Germany for decades, um, and it's not considered particularly controversial. Um, so that's a way of democratizing the uh, uh, corporations as well. Um, uh, so that's two things. Now, as for whether the, what role, um, say, local um, low-level groups might play. Um, well, uh, the, the more the better, but I'm, I'm, it's hard to see how you can um, generate that degree of grassroots democracy in, in what I call this world of big. Um, we live in societies which have economies of scale, have um, uh, forms of power that are so enormous it's really hard. It's hard to be optimistic about that kind of grassroots thing. You do see evidence of it in certain parts of the world. Um, there are movements, um, in particularly in South and Central America, um, that are, um, are uh, spontaneous grassroots democratic movements that have had some limited success. Um, in Mexico, for example, or in uh, in uh, other parts of the, that region, um, but it's been very limited, and they're quickly overwhelmed. Um, uh, and these are groups that are not, you know, uh, extensions of the state or agencies of the state, um, and often resisting the state, the, the combination of state and market power together, which is quite quite common in that mm. part of the world. But again, I do talk about this in the book. I think these things are, um, they're admirable and to be uh, you know, commended and supported to the extent they exist, but they seem to me to be um, a bit quixotic in a world that's really dominated by huge corporations and big states. And um, mm. 
I, I don't talk, you're right, I don't talk a lot about how you connect big states to grassroots democracy, to um, uh, popular democracy, um, perhaps because um, uh, I just don't see much, I don't see a good or an obvious way to do that, to achieve that. The, the, the issue that I left hanging in the book, which I may get to in a subsequent book, is, uh, is, is how you get the state to prioritize the public interest. I argue for a public interest state, a state, because states aren't in themselves necessarily supportive of the public good. We, we know this for a fact that uh, most states don't act in the public interest. They act in the interest of a political party or the interest of, of organized businesses, what have you. So how do you get states to be, um, uh, to, to prioritize public good? Because that's what I want. Um, because I don't think that you get it any, any other way under these circumstances. Uh, that's the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know how you do. It has to do with civic culture and um, you're into the realms of, of, uh, of culture and it's very hard to know. But all I can say is um, I, I don't see much opportunity for um, connecting the state as it exists today, necessarily big and, and uh, powerful and, and with, with these um, local movements. Mm. Well, I think, I mean, you know, th that's probably where you would get a lot of, a lot of challenge, I think, Graham, that um, there aren't uh, long traditions of political thought, particularly on the left, of um, uh, empowering workers and communities uh, to run and own organisations uh, in, the, in the common good, or to find mutual and non-state and non-market forms of uh, organizing power, which may be tax funded and may be, mm. uh, be possible by the state, um, uh, and which, you know, uh, lend themselves to uh, a dispersal of power, a stronger role for communities, and for more participatory and, uh, and maybe even deliberative dem democratic engagement. But that's probably for another day. Sounds like there's another book there, Graham. Yeah, I'm all for that. I'm <laughs> um, all for that. Yeah. You take those things. So I just want to see whether we've got any other questions that I haven't uh, put to you. So there's a number from Jeremy arguing, I think, wanting to touch on some of these questions, actually. I mean, how do you get the right incentives for publicly owned utilities to, you know, to be efficient and effective and to mm -hmm. be uh, accountable? I think we've, we've touched upon that. Uh, perhaps in what we've just been discussing as well. Um, there's a question from Nick Morgosia on um, institutional investors. I mean, one argument actually is that in the kind of typology in states of states and markets, you present an argument for large corporations. Um, others would say increasingly we, we live in an asset manager capitalism uh, with all, a cl classes of institutional investors who invest across economies uh, own wide swathes of uh, the economy, the black rocks of this world, mm. um, uh, and that ha that ha we have to we have to think very hard about their power, the finance they control, yeah. rather than simply about the corporations. Um, there's a question there ab ab about that, so I don't know if you might want to touch on that. Um, and uh, and then another one um, right at the end again, a couple on China, but I think you've, you've talked about this already. But you know, if China were more democratic, would its state capitalism be the best form of government 
for the 21st century. I think you said, you know, that you do see an expanding role for state-owned enterprises yeah. at the same time as a more democratic and accountable form of government. Um, yeah, I, uh, they should be democratic in democratic systems, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, I suppose there was, a, there was a one from Jeremy, and it touches on a point I wanted also to raise with you, which is, um, I mean, uh, in talking about neoliberalism as an experiment, is there a danger that you a that you sort of that you that you endow it with a kind of consciously time limited um, intention that people that, that politicians like Margaret Thatcher and others um, were were experimenting when in fact they saw themselves as you know fundamentally trying to redraw the order of the societies that they governed but they weren't doing it as something experimental they were doing it for the long term and they were doing it to lay down institutional foundations that would that would endure often actually with a, a measure of violence a measure of class mm. struggle a measure of um uh, a measure of the use of the state to prosecute those objectives and the sort of notion of an experiment perhaps um uh as it were, leads us to think that in some sense this is somewhat more benign or at least mm -hmm. temporal than perhaps is the case. Yeah, and I mean, that's that, a good point. I, yeah. And that, in, sorry, just to finish the point, and that in turn yeah. raises the question of where the agency comes from for any new forms of social and economic change. Because in the presentation of your argument, you rested quite a lot on the fact that the kind of neoliberal era is sort of coming to a close despite the tenacity of its ideas and others mm. have argued that too and yet there's perhaps less uh, of a sense or certainly not a consensus less of a sort of sense of where the agency comes from to create the new where will the where will the state you know who will drive this uh, uh, that you wish to see Right. Well, let's start with the experiment uh, thing. I, I take a point. I should just clarify. Um, uh, so by experiment, I meant that um, it simply had not been tried in practice, that it was a theory that had been around and been developed since the 1930s, uh, you know, uh, Milton Friedman, Hayek, etc. Um, uh, and so it was experiment in that sense, in the sense that it had, be, had to be translated into public policy and implemented perhaps, as you say, even forced on reluctant to population. Um, however, I did not mean to imply using the, that term that um, the people who were doing that implementing uh, and enforcement were in any way um, hesitant or doubtful as the word experiment might imply because of course you might use the word experiment to mean well I don't know I don't really know how this will work out let's test it and see I don't think Margaret Thatcher ever um, uh, sort of sat there thinking gosh um, would I wonder if this will work um, uh, she, she, she had you know uh, a, a zealous uh, um, totality of belief it seems so I don't mean to imply using that word that there was any doubt in the minds of people like her or Ronald Reagan or, or um, others that, that about, about the policy. Um, I simply meant it in the sense that uh, otherwise they wouldn't have maybe pushed it as much as they did. Um, but uh, only to imply that it, uh, I meant it to be uh, something that had to be transferred from theory to practice. And in that sense, it, it had to be an experiment. Um, uh, 
the agency question then. Um, well, uh, that's a, that's a hard one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I I don't really know where that would come from. Um, it's unlikely to come from civil society. <laughs> uh, to go back to our earlier point, um, it's it's it may come about. Here I'm very tentative. I said that I hoped this was the beginning of the end of neoliberalism. I don't know. It may last a lot longer. It may outlive me, and um, it may be this may be a false dawn. Um, it, it may come about because uh, neoliberalism just fails. I think it is has failed, and I'm rather surprised it's still here in this form that it is. I would have thought that the financial crisis of 2008 would have created a huge uh, movement, um, maybe not a grass grassroots movement, but I would have generated a much more of a backlash politically against neoliberalism than it did. Um, it, it didn't, it, not to the degree I would be expected. So that that's not very optimistic from my point of view, because um, it might suggest that it is more resilient than I'm, than I'm assuming or hoping. Um, and it may take a crisis of capitalism of the neoliberal form of the, of the state to um, open up a space for debate and, uh, and agency. Um, uh, I'm hoping that uh, this will be my little contribution to that, my modest contribution. Um, but, you know, it may well be that that doesn't happen at all. And if not, you know, I don't know. I don't know where the agency comes from. Um, but, but, you know, if, if, uh, if neoliberal form of capitalism survived the financial crisis of 2008, Oh, well, um, as it seems to have done, um, th then, then it's hard to be optimistic. The COVID crisis, the pandemic, has certainly shown that the state has a fundamentally important role to play in protecting public health. Uh, the book, my book opens with, with you know, a, a what if. What if this was the 19th century? There was no welfare state. There was no NHS. Um, uh, what would have happened? Um, uh, uh, you know, the capitalist markets were given far too much credit for uh, solving this crisis, um, uh, addressing this crisis. Um, it was mainly funded by the state. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that may reinforce it. And I do quote some of polls, some opinion polls in the book, which support, particularly among the young, which support um, the uh, the idea that people are more receptive to a, a stronger role for the state than has hitherto been the case, at least for say forty years or so. Uh, but again, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm persuadable that this is wishful thinking, and um, I'm deluding myself. And um, you know, it might be here. It might be here um, a lot longer. Uh, who, who can okay. say? I may be not the best person to ask about agency. No, 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 no. Well, um, that's a fair question. It's a key question. It's a key question. Yeah. I wish I had a better answer. Well, Graham, it's um, uh, we're we're now uh, at the end of the time mm -hmm. we have. Uh, but thank you very much for answering all those questions so comprehensively and um, uh, so thoughtfully. It's, it's uh, I'm sure everybody who's been tuning in is greatly appreciate that and these are you know these are big and important questions that matter yeah. fundamentally to uh to, to our societies and uh we haven't talked about it much but you can you uh 
uh, you could certainly argue that the challenge of climate change requires Absolutely. A, a very different understanding of the state. And that's perhaps, again, something that we need to uh, return mm. to in these discussions in, in due course. But thank you uh, very much indeed for, for your lecture this evening and for, as I say, for answering all the questions so thoroughly and thoughtfully. And um, I, I think uh, my colleague Sophie put in the chat a link to the book for people that want to click on that link and go through to mm -hmm. purchase it. Um, it's published by Yale University Press. So thank you very much indeed, Graham. Thank you for yep. joining us. Um, it's been a great you, pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And, um,